Titus chapter 2. We have been, this is our our third message, third sermon in the book of Titus. Um, And we've uh, last week looked at Paul's instructions to Titus for appointing elders and opposing false teachers. And after those instructions, Paul now turns to Titus and gives him instructions on what he is to teach and presumably the elders he's appointing as well. So in contrast to the false teachers and the things that they're teaching, what's he supposed to teach? And so in contrast to those who are teaching things they ought not to teach, Titus and the elders are to teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. We see that in chapter 2, verse 1. And so that, now I'm going to just start and read Titus chapter 2. You must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed, because they have nothing bad to say about us. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything. To try to please them and not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted, so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These, then, are the things you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. At the end of chapter 1, Titus was instructed how to disarm false doctrine by silencing and sharply rebuking the false teachers. But now at the beginning of chapter 2, he turns to the building up of good doctrine, sound doctrine, or healthy teaching. The Pew Bibles simply read, you must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. But other translations actually capture the contrast with the false teachers a little more clearly. The ESV, as one example reads, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. So we can see that this is a transition from talking about the false teachers and what they do and what their lives are like and what they teach. And he says, but unlike that, as for you, you teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. Doctrine or teaching in the church is, uh, is like an organ in the body. Um, When that organ, when the doctrine is sick, it can spread and it can spread unhealthy symptoms throughout the whole body. In in chapter 1, it said they are ruining whole households by teaching what they ought not to teach. And like a transplant solves the problem of a, a failing vital organ, so Titus is instructed not just to cut out the bad, the unsound doctrine, but to replace it with healthy teaching, with sound doctrine. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And notice also that it's not only the sound doctrine itself that he's supposed to teach that's supposed to be proclaimed, but also what is in accord with that sound doctrine. 
Certainly when Paul was with Titus in Crete, his primary task was proclaiming the gospel, the, the sound doctrine of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what he did everywhere he went. That was his ultimate task. That was his ultimate calling. In Ephesians 3, Paul says it this way, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God. The gospel has been preached. The church has been planted. And now remember that Paul has left Titus in Crete to straighten out what was left unfinished. The sound doctrine has been proclaimed, but imposters have risen up with their false gospels and the twisted behavior that accompanies it. Part of the straightening out what was left unfinished is proclaiming the gospel, the sound doctrine, and also the character that ought to accompany it. The gospel of Christ and the imitation of Christ, the sound doctrine and what accords with sound doctrine. And that's now what uh, Paul turns to is what it is that accords with sound doctrine. In verses 2 through 10. First notice um, that what accords with sound doctrine is contextualized to different believers, different types of believers. Paul gives instructions to pass along to older men and older women, younger women and younger men, and also to slaves. Even though every Christian is called equally to imitate Christ in his humility, his godliness, his love, and his dependence, on the Father, God also recognizes our differences and encourages his people not just with broad brushstrokes, but also at times with special attention in regards to our stations in life. He recognizes both the unique responsibilities and challenges of each one of his people. He sees the older saint who has faithfully for decades upon decades um, lived with Christ, and he can specifically encourage that weary pilgrim as he nears the end of his journey. He sees the young, young mother trying to juggle her children, her marriage, her home, on top of stewarding her own relationship with God. And he can specifically encourage her in that work. That even though at times it may feel in vain, feels like nothing is getting done, that she's not living up to her full potential, he can encourage her that her work is incredibly important to him. The temptations that entice an older woman are often different from those that trap a young man. People from all different walks of life are called to the same Lord, and, with, and we are all called to keep in step with the same Spirit and bear the same fruits of the Spirit. And, but despite that, there are times where more specific contextualized counsel is in order, and such is the case here as Paul begins with the older men. Verse 2 reads, Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. The most mature in life ought also to be mature in faith. If even through a worldly lens, even in the eyes of the world, removed from a Christian context, we often view older men as the pinnacle of wisdom. How much more should older Christian men embody sober-mindedness, self-control, faith, love, etc.? In the early church, there was this trio of faith, hope, and love, and it comprised kind of a, a golden triangle of sorts of Christian ethics. We read this, for example, in 1 Corinthians 13, where it says, And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. And here, those three are encouraged, but with a slight change in emphasis. Paul says the older men should be sound in faith, love, and endurance. As life carries on, and the mind and body feel weaker by the day, sometimes enduring in hope is the greatest challenge for a senior Christian. One can be weary from having lived many years in a fallen world, 
and be tempted towards the end of life to wonder if this twisted world is really any better off than the day they were born. In fact, many fear that it is worse. What accords with sound doctrine is an endurance of hope. While sharpness of mind, clarity of sight, and strength of body may decrease as life goes on, self-control, faith, and love ought only to grow stronger. Next, he turns to the older women. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can train the younger women. While the instructions for older women will differ from those for older men, Paul first considers their similarities. He says, likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live. As the lives of older men are to be temperate and worthy respect, so a similar sense is communicated by reverent. The senior Christians, whether men or women, are not to be bumbling fools, for they have been trained for many years by the grace of Christ the wise. Next, Paul identifies two specific dangers for the older women, at the very least for those in Crete. Gossip and too much wine. The NASB translates slanderers as malicious gossips, while the CSB reads false accusers. The idea here is um, that it is not in accord with sound doctrine to be speaking ill of others behind their backs. And as for the wine, they are called to follow the elders of the church in this way, as is instructed to the elders in chapter 1, verse 7, since an overseer is entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, and not given to drunkenness. Drunkenness is not befitting the sound doctrine of the gospel, for it leads to further sin, while a life of the Spirit leads to Christ-likeness, which is why Ephesians 5 says, Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Finally, Paul instructs Titus to encourage the older women to teach what is good, instead of engaging in these other practices. Rather than focusing on tearing others down with their speech and being devoted to their own pleasures and drinking excessively, they are to focus on building others up and to be devoted to the welfare of others in the church, and especially and particularly the younger women. It reads, then they can train the younger women. There's a, actually a seamless transition here between the older women and the younger women. It leads right in, the instructions for the older women become, all of a sudden, the instructions for the younger women. While Paul instructed Titus, he instructed Titus himself, himself to teach the older men, and he instructed Titus to teach the older women, but he now actually instructs the older women to teach the younger women. The role of older women in the church is indispensable. Some may balk at the idea that God restricts the office of elder to only men in the church in his word. But we often then miss passages such as this, where God likewise gives particular irreplaceable roles for Christian women. God has gifted the women in the church, and this church included, in ways that he never has and never will gift an elder. 1 Corinthians 12 says, The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greatest honor. Now, observe what specifically the older women are supposed to be instructing the younger women in. It says, then they can train the younger, younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind and to be the sub 
subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. First instruction is to love their husbands and children. Now, for the social context of this letter, um, ancient Crete, an ancient Mediterranean society, it's safe, it was safe to assume that most, if not all, young women were married. So it might, might seem strange today to equate a young woman with a, a wife and mother. This, wasn't a, this was a safe assumption at the time for Paul. Now, husbands and children are not always easy to love. I should know myself. I know I'm not easy to love. For this reason, it is important that the younger women be trained in this discipline. It says that they can train the younger women to love their husbands and children. And this is very fitting. This is very much in accord with the gospel. For God loves his own children, who are often stubborn, disobedient, and wandering, who are sometimes, we might say, difficult to love. It brings God great honor when young women faithfully love their families. Secondly, the young women are to be self-controlled and pure. Self-control is now mentioned for a second time, or only a few verses in already it's been mentioned twice. And here it's coupled with pure. Likely this refers specifically to sexuality and faithfulness um, in marriage, since most of the other instructions also surround um, the context of the home and the family. And certainly um, this is fitting for God's people. It is in accord with sound doctrine. But it's also fair, I think, to ex extend this self-control and purity beyond those bounds, as self-control, more broadly speaking, is a fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. Third instruction is to be busy at home. This instruction requires perhaps most, the most thorough explanation, so we'll, we'll linger on this point a little longer. But first, I think it's important to recognize what it does not mean. It does not mean that women cannot pursue work outside the home. There's a couple of reasons I believe this. First, it's a positive command, not a negative. It says what to do, not what not to do. Secondly, we can see examples of women in Scripture who have other responsibilities besides homemaking. Consider Lydia, who is described as a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God in Acts 16. A woman who worships God was not prohibited from the marketplace. Or Phoebe, who Paul describes as a sister and a servant of the church. A sister is not prohibited from ministry outside the home. But now what it does mean. It was apparently a problem in, in some churches at the time for women to neglect their duties in the home by going out to gossip or otherwise get tangled up in unhealthy and unproductive tasks. Of a particular problem in Ephesus, Paul writes to, first, to Timothy in, in 1 Timothy um, about young widows, and he says of them that they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. I'm not projecting this problem onto any young women today, but I'm simply acknowledging what Paul, the type of thing he would have been referring to, and the type of context that might have given rise to such a command to be busy at home. So what we can reason that busy at home means is for young women to invest in the important work of caring for their families. It doesn't mean that they can't invest in other things, in other pursuits, but to not neglect the important duty of their families. So it doesn't say not to, doesn't prohibit women from working, but it does encourage them to not let that overtake and take away from their families. Our society today sometimes sees women prioritizing their families as a denigration of their worth, a waste of their talents, but nothing could be further from how God sees things. 
The Lord sees women who prioritize their families not as wasting their talents, but investing them in a most important work. Paul is not insisting that young women do not pursue profession or ministry outside the home, but he is insisting that they love and serve those within their home and that they make that a priority. It is this love that is in accord with sound doctrine. Next, he instructs young women to be kind. To be more brief here, this fruit of the Spirit is also singled out for young women. Uh, These tasks of loving their husbands and their children and serving in the home can be exhausting and at times frustrating. And so, in the stresses of motherhood, it is especially important to remember this fruit of the Spirit, which is kindness. And this is in accord with sound doctrine of a God whose kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. Finally, the young women are instructed to love their families well by being subject to their husbands. Though it's not specified here, in Ephesians 5, uh, Paul calls on husbands to love their wives self-sacrificially as Christ loved the church. And the corresponding direction is for wives to submit to their husbands as the church does to Christ. It's in Ephesians 5, 22 and following. What this entails is a matter, what all this entails is a matter of debate among Christians. To what extent is there submission and subjection? What does it look like to love as Christ loved the church? What does it look like to submit? Um, my goal is not to settle that debate here. I simply want to stick to the language of Scripture and the theology behind that portrayal of the marriage roles. The husband is responsible to care for and to treasure his wife, always keeping her best interest at the forefront. And in response, the wife is to entrust herself to her husband as he does so. Christian marriage is meant to mirror the loving, self-giving relationship between Christ and his people. On this part, the Bible is clear. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. It's Ephesians 5, 31 and 32. So it's clear that for young women who are married, as well as husbands, though it's not mentioned here explicitly, to faithfully contribute their part to their marriages is in accord with the gospel, for it portrays the gospel to a watching world. Which is why Paul ends his instruction to the young women, so that no one will malign the word of God. Moving on to verse 6 in the young men. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. Now, at a first glance, it might look like the young men get off the hook easy. One instruction, be self-controlled. That's it. But I think this rush to call foul can be tempered by two things. First is the word similarly. It says, similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In saying that, he is relating this one instruction to all, to, of young men to all the others he has given as well. Temperance, reverence, loving their families, These are all certainly in accord with sound doctrine for the young men as well. Paul does not mean to excuse them from these other duties, but he does want to focus their attention on just one, self-control. Also consider the possibility that while uh, these other kind of classes of believers are exhorted to many duties, different things, a list of things, the young man is is to direct his focus on one duty in particular, not because he's getting off easy, but because that task for him is actually so difficult. Self-control is often found to be lacking the most in young men. 
I believe the succinctness of the instruction is not to exempt the young men from other duties, but to warn them of the great danger that threatens them as young men, the danger of neglecting self-control. After that brief address to young men, Paul turns actually to Titus specifically. He says, in everything, set an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. It appears that Paul is actually grouping Titus in with these young men. He gives instructions to the young men, but then within that, turns to Titus specifically. He, uh, he ins- his instructions mirror on the instructions that, in a lot of ways that Paul gave to Timothy, another young man who he led and in, in discipled. He encourages, um, in in 1 Timothy, he encourages the young Timothy as well to um, build up others and be an example despite his own youthfulness. He says, don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers, 1 Timothy 4.12. Titus is given two instructions, both of which are in accord with sound doctrine. The first one is um, he is to model what is in accord with sound doctrine. It says, in everything, set them an example by doing what is good. It's one thing to be told what to do. It's another to be shown. Jesus did not simply tell his disciples how to live. He showed them. He didn't just tell us he loved us. He showed us. He didn't just say that there is hope of resurrection from the dead, but he showed us that there is. And so in the same way, Titus is to imitate the example of Christ and himself be an example to others. Secondly, Titus is to teach with conviction. Specifically, his teaching should be marked by integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech. It's a sad truth that some pastors or others in ministry teach and preach as a mere duty. Just something they do, just some way to get a paycheck. They go through their motions, say what needs to be said, then clock out and neglect applying anything that they said to their own lives. This is not what Titus was called to. He was to show integrity in his teaching. Others might see their role as a preacher or teacher as more like an entertainer. They judge the success of a sermon or a Sunday school lesson by how many laughs they can elicit or how lighthearted they can come across. Now, it's not that we can't have moments of laughter in a sermon, but what ought to characterize, by and large, Christian teaching is its seriousness. Serious teaching is in accord with the serious gospel. The eternity of souls is at stake. Fellowship with the God of the universe is at stake. The gospel is a serious matter. There were false teachers all around Crete ruining whole households, leading sheep astray to their own demise. How could Titus simply be known as someone who's good for a few chuckles? Others who teach or preach a Christian doctrine may be prone to being loose with their thoughts or words, not thoughtful, not careful. And in doing so, they're opening up the teaching, the gospel, to unneeded and distracting criticisms. On the contrary, Titus is instructed to show soundness of speech in his teaching. And Titus is to set an example and teach with conviction so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Titus is not just to teach what is in accord with sound doctrine, but how he teaches is also to be fitting to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lastly, he turns to slaves. 
Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted, so in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. I'm here going to be brief as well, so I'm going to kind of take a higher altitude approach with these instructions to, this, to the slaves, rather than kind of taking a trek through the woods. The summary point of these instructions, kind of the main idea for these Christian servants, is that they show that they can be fully trusted. Exuding honor and trustworthiness, even when circumstances are unfair or wrought with suffering, is incredibly in accord with the sound doctrine of the gospel. Christ himself came not as a wealthy king, but a suffering servant. When he was wronged, he did not seek vengeance. We read that he took the form of a servant and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross in Philippians 2. Of all the types of Christians that have been addressed in this section, older men, older women, younger men, younger women, none of them bear more resemblance to Christ in their circumstances than the slaves, than the servants. Because Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. After observing the unique dem instructions given to kind of each demographic, it's also important, I think, for us to note the similarities between all of them. And there's a few. The first one is that two times we read um, that a new kind of group of Christians is introduced with the phrase, like, similarly or likewise. Again, reminding us that though there are certain contexts in which our lives and obedience to Christ might look different, all, by and large, our lives ought to all imitate the same Jesus Christ. Secondly, in addition, there are three groups that are explicitly called to self-control. The older men in verse 2, the younger women in verse 5, and the younger men in verse 6. And the rest of them, though it's not explicitly said that self-control in that phrase is used, you still get the same idea that it implies that fruit of the Spirit with other descriptions, such as reverent in the way they live for older women, or show that they can be fully trusted for the servants. A third similarity is three times Paul states what benefit it is, why it is that the Christians should live this way. Of the younger women, he says, so that no one will malign the word of God, in verse 5. Of Titus, he says, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us, in verse 8. And of the slaves, in verse 10, he says, so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior a true. With that being the last one, that um, our living for Christ, our living for the sound doctrine, makes the teaching about God our Savior attractive. This is why Titus was called to teach what according to the sound doctrine. That the lot of those who hold to the sound doctrine may adorn it. And the King James Version reads, reads a little differently. It says that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. An adorning, a decorating, a a bringing beauty to it. This sound doctrine, Peter says, is things into which angels long to look. It's incredible. He also calls it in 2 Peter his precious and very great promises. John, in the opening lines of his gospel, explains the good news in this way. He says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory 
glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And the writer of Hebrews extols Christ as the radiance of the glory of God. Christ is glorious, radiant, precious, and even the angels look to long to look into the mystery of his miraculous work. What is fitting of those who proclaim that precious, radiant glory? What accords with that sound doctrine? Should a precious diamond be set on a corroded ring? Should an immaculate painting be framed by pieces of scrap wood? Should the bride of Christ have filthy, tattered rags as her wedding gown? Remember the saying from chapter 1, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. And Paul condemned the false teachers and their teaching because that is exactly what they were. He said they claim to know God, but they deny him by their works. They were no different from the world around them. Their doctrine made no difference. It produced nothing but wickedness. But that is not the doctrine of Christ. That is not the gospel. That is not the good news. The gospel is, from chapter 1, the truth that leads to godliness. How will people see it? How will people see it as the truth that leads to godliness if those who profess it are not godly? A lot of times, a common critique or a complaint people have about Christianity today is not even so much about the doctrine itself sometimes, but it's actually with what accords with the doctrine. How often do we hear that someone does not want to be a Christian, not because they think the gospel is untrue, though they might as well, but because the people who claim to be Christians are hypocrites. Because it's not that they see that there's not a sound doctrine there, but that what's supposedly a sound doctrine doesn't seem to be producing what fits with that. It doesn't seem to produce sound living. Now, in saying this, it's important to remember, remember, it's, the, it's not the godliness that leads to truth. It's the truth that leads to godliness. This adorning the gospel, or this making the gospel attractive, um, is not in reality us adding beauty to the gospel. It's not actually making it better. But it is the beauty of the gospel, the beauty that's inherent to the gospel itself, coming out through us. We do not adorn or decorate the gospel with something we have in ourselves. We don't have, like, beautiful things. We don't have gems or nice clothes that we can then put on the gospel to make it more attractive. Paul himself acknowledged in his letter to the Romans, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. In Israel, in the book of Isaiah, confesses to God, But we are all as unclean, an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. And Jesus likewise confirmed to his disciples in John 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. We can add nothing to the gospel in reality. We can't actually make it better or more beautiful. But do you wish to adorn the vine of Christ with sweet fruit? Then you must abide in the vine. We must acknowledge like David did in uh, Chronicles, after gathering the precious stones and metals for the temple, um, for Solomon to build it. He says, but who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? For everything comes from you and we have given you only what comes from your own hand. Like David adorning the temple and Solomon adorning the temple with the glory of God, 
We are to adorn the gospel, but not with anything that comes from with ourselves, but from what God provides through the gospel itself. He produces the fruit. He produces the righteousness, and we let that move through us, and that is what brings beauty to the gospel. If we aim to adorn the, the sound doctrine with our own efforts, with our own strength, from our own nature, then we will simply be slapping on filthy rags and dead branches. And so we make the teaching about God our Savior attractive not so much by beautifying the message, but by the message beautifying us. For this reason, Paul now turns from what is in accord with sound doctrine to the sound doctrine itself and explains the transforming nature of the good news. Verse 11, he says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. While we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. First, he says, for. That's how he begins this section. Why should Titus teach and the Christians in Crete live what accords with the sound doctrine? It's because the grace of God has appeared and teaches us. The gospel both offers salvation in the future and teaches or transforms us now. <clears throat> As the, the famous hymn Amazing Grace goes, it not only twas grace that brought me safe thus far, but also and grace will lead me home. Secondly, this section, verses 11 through 14, are one sentence in the Greek, and the subject of the sentence the whole way through is the grace of God. And this grace of God is the sound doctrine. It is the truth that leads to godliness. That's the main thing in view the whole way through. Now, here's the crux of the issue. How, how does this truth lead to godliness? How does grace teach us to renounce ungodliness, to say no to ungodly desires, to live upright and holy lives. How does it do that? First, it does that. The grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness. But how does grace teach us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions? Consider how before the grace of God appeared in Jesus Christ, mankind was enslaved to sin. We couldn't say no to sin. Before sending the flood, God observed mankind, and it says that he saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And in Ephesians, Paul describes the natural man as dead in the trespasses and sins in which he once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Before grace, there was no hope. We couldn't say no to ungodliness. We always insisted on saying yes. Secondly, but in the gracious substitutionary death of Christ, that sinful nature which enslaved us, which made us insist on saying yes to ungodliness, was also put to death, thereby freeing us from our inability to resist Satan. God prophesied through the prophet Ezekiel, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. It's Ezekiel 36, 25. And Paul writes in his epistle to, to the Romans, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, 
so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Adam could, say, could not say no to the devil in the lush paradise of the garden, and so neither could his children. But Jesus Christ did say no to the devil in the barren wilderness, and so his children can say no as well. We inherited Adam's unrighteousness by being born, but we inherit Christ's righteousness by being reborn. And this new birth is a total act of God's grace. And so grace teaches us to say no to ungodly desires and worldly passions because it frees us from our slavery to sin. <clears throat> How is it that grace transforms us? It does because grace teaches us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. God's grace gives us a new heart. Returning to Ezekiel 36, after God promises to cleanse his people from their sin, he also promises, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Notice that God is the one giving us a new heart. He is the one doing the stone heart removal and the fleshy heart implanting. No man can give himself a transplant. He is entirely at the mercy of the surgeon. And so we cannot give ourselves new spiritual hearts. We are entirely at the mercy of a gracious God. This new heart is not cold and calloused like a stone. It's not rejecting the commands of God, but it is fleshy. It beats, it races, it lives, it yearns to follow the commands of God. And so grace teaches us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives because grace gives us a new heart. God's grace also <clears throat> teaches us to live upright and godly lives because God's grace indwells us with the Holy Spirit. Again, Ezekiel 36, the next verse continues, And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. The Holy Spirit is repeatedly referred to as a gift in the scriptures. At Pentecost, P Peter preached, Repent, be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Later, Luke records, The gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. And a gift, Paul insists, is an act of grace. It's contrary to a wage, which is earned. Romans 4, he says, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And in Ephesians, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. If it is a gift, then it is grace. And if the Holy Spirit is given as a gift, then he is given to us by grace. And this Holy Spirit, who is given as an act of God's grace, teaches us to live self-controlled, upright, and holy lives in this present age. But the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. That's Jesus in John 14. And then just a little while later, Jesus says, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. Which leads Paul to insist in Galatians, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And how does Christ dwell in us? By the indwelling of, his spirit, of the spirit of Christ in our hearts, which is by grace. Grace also teaches us to live godly lives because grace makes us alive. Just a few moments ago, I cited Ephesians 2, 1, which says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked. But just a few verses later, Paul continues, But God, being rich in mercy 
because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sin, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. If our deadness was characterized by our trespasses, by our sins, then how else are we to understand being alive than, by, than obedience and righteousness, living godly lives? If death is ungodliness, then life is godliness. And this, too, is an act of God's grace. A dead man cannot make himself alive because a dead man can't do anything. A dead man can't even say, I'm alive, let alone actually resuscitate himself. No, the verse reads, but God, being rich in mercy, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And then he clarifies to make sure we get the point by grace you have been saved. Finally, God's grace teaches us to live godly lives because God's grace unites us to other believers. Later in Ephesians 2, Paul explains how all who are in Christ, both Jew and Gentile, are united to one another through the gospel. He says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. In Christ, the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The grace of God reconciles us not only to God, but also to one another in the church. And recall how in our main passage, Titus 2, the older women are admonished to teach and encourage the younger women to live godly lives, and how Titus is encouraged to be an example to the other young men. By his grace, God has given us each other, and God has decided and ordained that a primary way that we grow and learn to live godly lives is through encouraging one another to do so. Hebrews 10 says, And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as it is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So by his gracious uniting us to one another, the grace of God teaches us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Then he goes on in verse 13. This doctrine, this truth, this grace of God that grows us in godliness, that it does this while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We do not wait in idleness, twiddling our thumbs, wondering if and when Jesus will come back. Jesus gave his people a job to do, a mission to do, and he also gave them the Holy Spirit to help them do it. His disciples aren't those who just stand around looking into the sky um, but they also aren't people who are too busy with doing what they call kingdom work to eat for his return. They aren't to just trust in what they do then to be their blessed hope. Our blessed hope is the glorious return of Jesus Christ, but he transforms us and he calls us to live in accord with the gospel while we wait. We will be a finished work when Christ returns, but we are works in progress now. Notice that not only is godliness produced by the grace of Christ, it is the purpose of the grace of Christ. It says, who gave himself to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. There's many correct biblical answers to the question, why did Christ die for us? You could say, because he loves us. That's true. Romans 5, 8. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Why did Christ die for us? To save us from sin. Also true. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. 
Why did Christ die for us? To give us eternal life. Also true, John 3.16. But the answer that this passage adds is that Christ died for us to make us good. He died to make out of a lost, rebellious, depraved human race a purified people for himself who were eager to do what is good. Christ did not die for his people to leave them as they were. He died to make them who he wants them to be and who they were always meant to be. Lastly, the end, verse 15. Paul returns again to the charge he gave Titus at the beginning. In verse 1, he exhorted him to teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. And in verse 15, he reiterates, these then are the things that you should teach. And by these, he means both what accords with sound doctrine and the sound doctrine itself. He is not to teach just the works and produce a church of Pharisees in full pursuit of self-righteousness apart from the gospel, apart from the doctrine of God's grace. But he's also to teach that this sound doctrine is the truth that leads to godliness. That the doctrine is the grace that teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. And then combining his duties to teach believers what accords with sound doctrine and to oppose the false teachers, Paul charges Timothy firmly, encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. He can commission Titus to perform this task in Crete with all authority because he is called by God and he stands for the truth. Titus has no authority in himself, but he can encourage and rebuke with all authority because he stands on the authority of the word of God, the message of Jesus Christ. To summarize, there's two doctrines that this passage teaches. One is that godly living is a product of God's grace. It is a truth that leads to godliness. It is what accords with sound doctrine. It is rooted in the gospel. But secondly, it is also the purpose of one of the purposes of his grace towards us is that he intends for his grace to produce godliness. So it's not just what happens, but it's that way by design. I'll close by a couple brief um, points of application to different, different types of people who may be sitting here. First, is there some who might be walk away from a passage like this with their notes and a checklist of things that they need to do? I need, they wrote down all the, all the descriptions of the people in the first 10 verses, and, and they walked away thinking the point of this message was to do these things. <clears throat> you paid, <clears throat> but consider, if that's you, the role that grace plays in your religious life. You might think one of two things. One, I received, God, I received God's grace once I've met the conditions. Or, I received God's grace at the outset, but now I have to do my part. Neither of these is a sound doctrine of God's grace. For they assume that what God, Christ did on the cross is insufficient. Secondly, <clears throat> someone might say, I have grace, and so it doesn't matter how I live. If this is you, I urge you to examine yourself in light of what accords with sound doctrine. Are you self-controlled, reverent, loving and submitting to your family, gracious and trustworthy, are you worthy of respect and sound in faith, love, and endurance? If you do not care for these things, then you do not care for grace either. You lie when you say, I have grace. It doesn't matter how I live, because you don't have grace, because this grace produces godliness. Then as a solution, I urge you not just to devote yourself to good works, but to first run to Christ and ask for his forgiveness. 
Drink of true grace and then let it have its effect on you that you would desire to live a life of godliness. The third person is a Christian who lacks assurance. There's a third person, a true believer, a saint, who sees what kind of life is fitting for the gospel, who reads these things and desires it, but is left discouraged because they feel as though they don't measure up to that level of holiness. Consequently, they question whether they know Christ and his grace at all. If I don't adequately reflect what accords with the sound doctrine, does the gospel even apply to me? Am I saved? First, you have to recognize that grace teaches us to renounce ungodliness and to live godly lives. Teaching is a process, a process that goes until Christ our Lord returns, or we return to him. Do not be discouraged that the work is incomplete, but be encouraged that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. A recognition of your own imperfections is not evidence of a lack of God's grace. For anyone who is to learn must first recognize that there's more to be taught. Secondly, consider that you do desire to live in accord with sound doctrine. A hatred of your own sin is evidence that you have met with the grace of Christ. No one sincerely desires to live a life for God, but the one whose stone heart has already been replaced with the heart of flesh. All those benefits of what God's grace does, all the reasons of why he died for us to save us from sins, to give us eternal life, and to produce godliness in our lives are a package deal. You don't get, you don't get one without the other. And so the desire to do what is good is why he came to redeem for himself the people who are eager to do what is good. Your eagerness to do what is good, even if it is manifested by a desire to do better, marks you as a child of grace. Therefore, persevere in the school of God's grace and be transformed by the gracious gifts of his spirit, the fellowship believers in the word.